0: I woke up in Manor Park with a mouth full of maggots. Spitting and cursing in the frozen dark, soaked through with foul-smelling water, I crawled out of a ditch opposite the cemetery, my clothes wrapped around me like rags against the cold wind on that gloomy October morning. I tried to hail a cab, but none stopped for me, or even seemed to see me. I was covered in dozens of crawling insects, which I couldn't get rid of, skittering across my skin as I futilely tried to bat them away. I caught the first train home, watching the sun rise as I staggered into my dingy flat like the spectre of death, where I collapsed on my couch and passed out for 19 hours. A month had passed since I went underground in Aldgate, I later discovered. I'd lost all conception of time. My boss, or at least, the automated system which had replaced my boss, had stopped scheduling me to work after I missed my first shift. But my rent was on direct debit, so luckily my landlord didn't lose a penny. I had a few texts from my friends, but it's not the first time I've gone radio silent for a while, so it didn't raise any alarms. I still had the recording of my time underground on my phone, which told me nothing, really. But other than that, I knew I was alone. Without anything better to do, I took a bath, picked the insects out of my hair, and settled down to write. I am James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Disposing of a body in the city is more challenging than you might think. In the 1850s, A series of acts led to the closure of most of the burial grounds within the square mile. The population of London had been steadily growing since the start of the Industrial Revolution, as money pooled in the capital from its imperial tendrils around the world, dragging humans intractably into its gaping maw. Bodies rolled downhill from the surrounding countryside towards the walled city, which sprawled and got comfortable in return. Churches quickly began to overflow with corpses. Traditionally, a body would be buried for around 20 years, and then it'd be dug up and the bones moved to an ossuary. The idea of an eternal resting place is relatively modern in that regard, but as the city became the centre of the universe in the 1800s, eternity became a mighty short stretch of time. There were tales of bodies being dug up mere weeks after being buried to make room for new customers, caskets still dripping human effluvium from the seams, as they were dragged down beneath the church in the dead of night. There's good money in the funeral business, you see. Those who have just experienced a loss are the perfect marks. Vulnerable, uncertain, and ready to part with any amount of money to buy a little peace of mind. Plus, there's no real follow-up. You can visit the grave or the crypt, but in most cases you're not going to ask the undertaker to dig them up to be certain that they're still down there. And so it goes. All who are solid melt into dirt. All that is holy is profaned. A man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of death. One urban legend tells of a crypt in the city which took over a thousand burials, despite only having space for 20 to 30 bodies on the underground shelves. It turns out that the crypt keeper had dug down through the basement floor into the sealed-up river fleet, where he'd dumped the fresh corpses to flow into the Thames, and then, eventually, out into the ocean. They custom-removable nameplates made for the remaining coffins, and whenever a family member came to visit, they'd simply switch out who was listed in the stacks. This has continued to modern times, incidentally. There's a new crypt system that they're marketing to cemeteries around the world, which requires a registered keycard to enter. And when you get inside, LED screens detect who you're there to visit, and show the name and photos of your deceased loved one. It's a clever trick. You can sell the same crypt to hundreds of different people, giving them all a little space to mourn, without revealing that it is, essentially, a mass grave with Wi-Fi. There aren't many ghosts in London cemeteries these days. The first thing I ask about when I visit a new place, but modern groundskeepers just don't spin a yarn like they used to. In this post-Goth and, hell, post-Goth revival world, Ouija boards and spiritual visions are pop-cultural wallpaper rather than symbols of the occult. And so too have ghost stories disappeared from view as an outlet for our fears and superstitions. Horror movies are as popular as ever, but the individual tradition of ghost stories has receded onto online message boards, far from the visceral personal experience of a haunting tale conveyed over a fire on a dark night. I have to wonder if it's more than that, though. Skeptics have long pointed out the way ghost sightings almost never take place in well-lit venues where you can verify what you saw. Instead, tending to occur in creaky old buildings lit by candles and torches, which throw flickering shadows around and play tricks on the eyes. Maybe the rise of electrical lighting put the ghosts off. Or maybe they just put on name badges and went to work. Death is often presented as a slumber, the big sleep. And yet the more time I spend in graveyards around the capital, The more I learn, there's no such thing. We all keep hurtling on without escape, our spirits born restless and devoured restlessly by the Earth. Perhaps the Victorian ghosts stopped haunting us, not because of electric lights or skepticism, but because we stopped being able to tell them apart from the living. I feel the weight of my ancestors upon me every time I get up for work. There's no longer time for mischief, or play, care, or fear. There's only endless, seamless capitalism. A pressure cooker which we're all trapped inside. Ghosts and angels, humans and nightmares, boiling away our differences until we dissolve. However I wound up in that ditch in Manor Park, it was fitting, at least. East London has always been the dumping ground for the city's unwanted bodies. The City of London Cemetery and Crematorium was opened in 1856, not far from where I woke up, as a pressure release valve for all the closed churchyards and the square mile. As churches gradually began to sell their land to developers throughout the 20th century, exhumed bodies were reburied in East London. There's one story of a reburial, where the truck arrived fully down on its axles, with a huge coffin, taking twelve people to carry. Consulting the archives, there is a record of a medieval knight who caught the plague, but who insisted on being buried in a full suit of armour, with all his weapons at his side, ready for battle, even in death. Maybe he knew something we don't. It's not just legitimate burials, though, of course. East London stretch of the green belt a broad term for the sprawling mass of green space which curves around the outer ring of the city, is well known for being the improvised graveyard of hundreds of failed East End gangsters. Every decent-sized city has an area like this, where, every so often, a dog walker will find a carrier bag full of body parts, or a jogger will trip over a dismembered leg in the undergrowth. It's easiest to cast this type of twilight parkland as the city's raging id – a banishing zone for violence and chaos – but that's a little too tidy. Preserved against development with the intention of restricting urban sprawl and ensuring access to green space for Londoners, this stretch of green belt has gradually transformed into an almost exact recreation of the stratified city itself. The leafy mansions of billionaire footballers and city traders dot the forest while between the oaks lie the forgotten corpses of dropouts, drifters, hustlers, and the homeless victims of international capital. Historically, people have gone to the forest to go mad, to retreat from the world, and their inconvenient bodies return, rotten and bloated, to disrupt the promenading rich, bursting like beached whales as a violent reminder of that which is too traumatic, too urgent to bury. The industrial quadrant of London, from Beckton Sewage Treatment Works up to the Lee Valley, is, in my mind, the spiritual home of London's radical history. It's easy to lose sight of British radicalism, among the twee imperialism of our tourist industry, all cobblestone streets named after concentration camp commanders from the Boer War, but workers have been uniting to resist fascism and violence for a long time. It was here that the radicals who were too urgent for history spent their whole lives scrapping for freedom. East London was the home of the other half of the suffragette movement, the half you don't see statues of, the labour organisers and the communists who demanded full suffrage for all races, classes and creeds, and an end to capitalism with it. Although there are radicals all over the city, It is startling how you can track the political journey of certain individuals geographically. The steady walk back from radicalism by Lillian Parker is a particularly telling case. Forged in the fires of Eastern industry and the Bryant and May Matchgirl strike of 1888, she was a committed trade unionist and a member of the Social Democratic Federation, an early Marxist party, until her early thirties, at which point she moved from Bow to Bloomsbury, and settled with a literary set in that part of town. It was there she started writing for various newspapers, as an opinion columnist. Hired as a radical voice when they needed commentary on left activism, her views were quickly diluted and watered down, and you can chart a clear walk back from radicalism in her work. She began to publish more and more columns castigating the left for being too radical, For making such impossible demands as a two-day weekend and five days holiday a year. If you read her columns from this time period, something strange starts to happen. Her writing always took a personal slant, but in 1905 she started including anecdotes about their house in Bloomsbury, a beautiful terrace just round the corner from the British Museum. Quoting from one article published in April of that year, I return now, reader, to the tale of my townhouse basement, where once again we are beset with some type of infestation. I am plagued with an insectoid buzzing at all hours of the night and day, and was forced to destroy a large number of fine sheets and duvets, having found them infested with maggots. I personally blame the large itinerant population, who befoul the streets of our fine capital regularly and whose presence in our neighbourhood I have reported repeatedly to the local constabulary. It, It goes on like that. Later in the year, she returned to the topic, stating that she'd had to throw out a dining set and destroy all the food in her pantry after she found it swarming with tiny flying bugs, the source of which she couldn't identify, but which she decided to publicly blame on an immigrant family which had just moved in nearby. Parker's husband ran for parliament in 1909, and she supported him throughout, aggressively campaigning against the more left-wing candidates who challenged his ties to the factory owners in East London and his support for strike-breaking measures. His election necessitated one final move to Belgravia within spitting distance of Harrods. At this point, she largely stopped writing and disappeared from the pages of history with the only account of her later life coming from a relative who reported her spending most of her time and money repeatedly renovating the house, which somehow kept succumbing to infestation. Beetles chewing up her furniture, fresh milk bottles somehow overflowing with worms, mosquitoes filling the attic, waking to find a roiling nest full of spiders above their bed. She died in 1937 at the age of 66, having outlived her husband and leaving behind no children. Her house is now inhabited by a prominent Conservative Party MP, and although I can't find any further information about the infestation, the 2009 expenses scandal revealed that he had spent over £5,000 of public money on pest control for his London properties. I sincerely hope that it didn't work. A romantic set of eyes sees the green belt as a leafy haven designed to ensure Londoners have a space from which to gaze at the stars. But all I see is Queen Elizabeth's hunting lodge, a three-story Tudor nightmare from which Henry VIII and his dipshit friends would get drunk and shoot deer which had been corralled into their view by peasant forest keepers. The keepers regularly fell victim to stray arrows, or perhaps more likely, Intentionally mistargeted arrows, and if they weren't killed instantly, they'd suffer a long, slow death from gangrene and sepsis. Ironically, this often worked out better for their families, since they could claim reimbursement from the king only if one of them died as a result of their duties. Shepherding the deer into sight of the hunting lodge was a suicide mission, and I use that phrase very literally. Poor men, with starving families, death-driving, terrified animals into the path of the nobility. Longing for the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune to strike them dead, that their children might eat. While the rich drink and laugh and enact the lazy, casual violence of those eternally shielded from consequence. This is the place where the bodies end up. You never really leave the city. You never really leave anything behind. It all lives within you. And wherever you go, there it is. I'm cursed by what I saw beneath the city, down in the old gate tunnel. I shut my eyes and I'm still miles beneath the earth, the water rising around my chest. It's not a dream or a flashback. I'm literally there. I haven't slept properly in weeks. I thrash, and I fight, and I claw, and still I'm pulled down, down, down. As I plunge beneath the freezing water, I see that I'm not alone. Surrounding me are hundreds, maybe thousands of other souls, thrashing and silently screaming as they drown, hands grasping, tantalizing inches from the surface. Their legs abound, and as I look down, I see mine are, too. We stay like that for a long time, gulping lungfuls of searing water, locked in the impossible eternity of the drowned, bobbing invisible beneath the placid ocean, beneath the frantic city, unseen, alone, forever. This is a dream I can't wake up from. I'm not sure I'm awake now. I've seen the depths, and now the depths live within me, haunting me, like the present. Episode of Subterraneans, a look at Blackfriars Bridge and the secret organizations which control the city. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcast app, since it really helps getting my name out there. I've also started a Patreon now where you can get access to transcripts, bonus content and information about upcoming episodes for $5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash I'd really appreciate it if you can sign up there or share it with anyone who you think might be interested. Thanks for listening.